You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So, Father, you have a very interesting theory about the origins of the Hebrew language and how it relates to other Semitic languages in the area. Could you talk about why it's important? for us to understand that in interpreting the Hebrew Bible. Well, let me begin with the end. There is no Hebrew language. There is just a scriptural language that is referred to as Hebrew for the first time in Greek in the preamble of Sirach. So this way, my hearers are forewarned and prepared. The problem is, as usual, Christian as well as Jewish theological premises distorted the original parabolic intent of Scripture by historicizing its events and individualizing its personalities. And this affected the view of the so-called language of the Bible. So if in Scripture there is no reference to Hebrew as a language, then one has to be very careful. And actually, here, uh, scholars themselves refer to Old Semitic, Phoenician, Proto-Sinaitic, and so on in script that they find. So one should be careful and begin by realizing that Semitic languages were very akin to one another to the extent that a good number of scholars of Ugaritic considered that language to be closer to Arabic than it is to Biblical Hebrew. To give the example of modern languages such as Germanic, Romance, and even Scandinavian and Slavic is good. It tells us that languages are interconnected. But this does not do justice to the matter, because Semitic languages were and still are much more closely related. Then, when you look at scripture, it is the same language all over the place. This is what dictionaries tell you. And yet, scholars, because of their tendency to historicize, they speak, and all of us had to go through this silliness, of archaic biblical Hebrew that flourished between the 10th and the 8th centuries BC. The standard or classical biblical Hebrew that flourished between the 8th and 6th century, and everybody praises the language of Isaiah. It was the golden centuries like Shakespeare and so. And then late biblical Hebrew between the 5th and the 3rd century. Now, the fallacy of the matter is that this language is just biblical, found only in scripture. And here I begin to refer to the preamble of Sirach, where the author says, for the same things uttered Hebraisti in Hebrew and translated into another tongue have not the same force in them. Obviously, the author is talking about the translation of this language of scripture, which he calls Hebraisti. And just to jump, and I'll come back to that, it was chosen to refer to the language of the people in the Bible that are referred to as Hebrews, Hebri, which is the shepherd, the passing by. One has to be extremely careful when we go 
to scripture itself, we have, and I would like to go quickly over texts found in 2 Kings and then the parallel in Isaiah and 2 Chronicles and Nehemiah, where we have the Aramaic language, Aramit, and then the people of Judah speak the Yehudit, which is Judean, Judahite. So we have these two words. Yehudit is in the feminine. Yehudit is like Judith, but it's feminine because in Hebrew, one of the two names is the lip Shafa, which is feminine. And Lashon, the tongue, is masculine. So you have the choice, but usually it's mentioned in this way. And in Arabic, it's the same thing. This is found in 2 Kings 18. In the parallel text, Isaiah 36, we have the same thing. We have Aramit, which interestingly is translated as Siristi, Syriac, in the Septuagint and the Vulgate. When we go to 2 Chronicles, the last book of the Bible, we have the same thing. We have, and they shouted it with a loud voice in the language of Judah. This is the RSV. But the original is just plainly Yehudit, Greek Yudaisti, Vulgate Yudaiche. Very interestingly, the King James Version in the Jews' speech, I like very much, very often at least, the King James Version. You have it, in the Jews' speech. Now, what is interesting for me is that in Nehemiah, and I would like to read this text, 1324, and half of their children spoke Ashdodit, the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak Yehudit the language of Judah, but the language which is Lashon of each people. So this text is of the essence for me because it parallels the Yehudit with Ashdodit. In other words, it is the language of a city or a region. And that's my thesis that to speak about the Hebrew language is just fallacy. It doesn't exist anywhere. So if the Judean is treated as the Ashdodite, then I'll jump to this very nice text in Isaiah 19, and I would like to read it. In that day shall five cities in the land of Egypt speak the Shafa of Canaan, the language of Canaan. And the Septuagint follows that, the Vulgate follows that. And swear to the Lord of hosts, one shall be called the city of destruction. So it's very interesting that it is referred to as the language of Canaan. But I have shown very clearly in my book that the scriptural Canaan, again, is not our geographical and supposed Canaan. It covers the entire Syrian wilderness. So a language is either a lip or a tongue when one speaks it in that way. And I would invite my hearers to check on the Hebrew if they can with the help of someone already in Genesis chapter 11, where we have the use of both these nouns. Let's keep in mind that text from Isaiah about the lip 
of Canaan, they will speak it. From my perspective, it means they will all speak the language of the new Zion, which is the scriptural language. So here again, I shy from using scriptural Hebrew because it doesn't exist. It is just that the authors came up with this language on purpose, as I said, let me repeat it, to belittle not only the Greeks, but their co-citizens. Very important in scripture, the people who are belittled the most are the insiders, so that no one would say that scripture is written in our, my language. It is written in a language, obviously Semitic, anti-Greek, but it is not to be found outside scripture. And very interestingly, we have nowadays the example, which is beyond the Scandinavian and the Slavic and the Germanic, the Esperanto language that was created with the intention of bringing the people together. Again, it's parallel to what scripture wanted to do. And until now, according to what I found, there are still at least two million people who speak it. And it's based on the Romance languages, but it's neither French nor Spanish nor anything. My conclusion is that the Hebraisti, which is found the first time in a Greek text, no one can prove that the preamble of Sirach was written first in Hebrew. That's a fallacy. You can't prove that. We don't have it. The preamble is intentional to force the hearer to realize that unless some of the hearers make the effort to hear scripture in its original, then they are not hearing scripture. And this is how the Muslims deal with the Quran. My conclusion is that this Hebraisti is the language, if I may say so, of the children of Abraham. Because Abram, before he was Abraham, was mentioned very early on. I believe it is in Genesis. Yes, I have it here in my notes. In 1413, he was referred to as Abram Ha'ibri, Abram the Hebrew. Out of a blue sky, there is nothing before it, and yet Abram is presented, is defined, if you like, as the Hebrew. And this obviously fits the fact that in the earlier chapter, this is 14.13, earlier in chapter 13.6-9, he is presented very clearly as a shepherd who is crossing the Syrian wilderness. So my conclusion is that the scriptural authors concocted a novel Semitic language that is a cross of the different Semitic languages extant at that time in order to correspond to their novel deity, which is unlike any other deity. Once more, let's revisit that. We talked about it. Whereas all the other deities existed by standing out in monumental statues of stone, sitting or standing in temples erected in stone for that person. And on all those temples, you had script. You can read it. The scriptural deity revealed itself in the scriptural stories laid down in writing in a concocted language as though he, in his uniqueness, 
conceived his equally unique language, making himself equivalent to the law inscribed in words of that language. Because he has no temple, you can't find his language the way you can find it in Egypt or in Mesopotamia. <laughs> you find it only in his book, which is the law. Put otherwise, instead of the humans going to him in his temple, he comes to them incarnate, not as an eternal platonic word as the Christians made it up, but he comes incarnate in the actual words of scripture. There is no word in the singular except through the words. Jeremiah chapter 1. That he was the law, and the law was he. By law, I mean the law, the prophets, and Ketubim meaning scripture. To know the law, because he was the law and the law was he, to know the law is to know him as accurately described by the apostle in Romans, where he fully equates the Jews boasting of God and boasting of the law. And everybody tries to mess up this translation. I mean, read RSV, they add boast of your relation with God. They like to personalize. Well, the original translation, King James Version, does not say that. It says boasting of God and boasting of the law. And in Greek, it's exactly the same wording. Kafhase to theo, kafhase to nomo. So God is the scriptural God, and the language of scripture is his language. There is no Hebrew except in the mind of the historicizing scholars. If you talk with Muslims, they know that Arabic is the language of the Quran. Even if there was a proto-Arabic, the Arabic of the grammars is the Arabic of the Quran, period. Just as a footnote. In Acts, the Jews hear Paul preach and they say, He's speaking ti evraivi dialecto. He's speaking in the evraivi, so Hebrew dialect or language. And then egoimi anir iudeos. I am a Jewish man. So that seems like there is a contrast there between Hebrew language and Jewish person. And then also in John 19, verse 17. Interestingly, when it's talking about where Jesus is being crucified, it says, O legete evraisti Golgotha. In the Hebrew language, Golgotha, and Golgotha, in what we would say today, that's actually looks like it's Aramaic, not Hebrew. So the way that New Testament understands these languages is clearly different than the way that modern scholars understand these languages. Is there a way that you have brought in this understanding of what the Hebrew language is in the New Testament to help us understand how this language functions as part of the story of Scripture? Well, according to me, and I discussed it in my book, I do refer to that, that it's the language connected to the language of the Old Testament. In other words, it is referential I can give you an example, like the gentleman who created the language of our contemporary state of Israel. Obviously, he started with the Hebrew, but he started adding words and a new grammar and so on. You have a reference, 
Like I remember I read somewhere that to speak of electricity, he used one of the words that is in the book of Ezekiel referring to the lightning and so on. So you find words, but then is the language the same? I remember one of my earlier students by the name of Timothy Lowe, who knew already modern Hebrew, and I forewarned him in the class of Hebrew, watch out, do not re-interject your grammar into the Old Testament. And after the fourth week, he came to me and said, Father Paul, I see exactly what you're seeing. You may not do that. And since the New Testament is literature, and Luke, again, for me, it's very clear. Anytime you get to that point, what he is referring to is that he is referring to Scripture. It's like when Paul says, I did not betray the tradition of the fathers as a Pharisee at the beginning. The Pharisees were studying what? They were not studying Hebrew. They were studying Scripture. That would be my solution to the matter. Now, obviously, someone can retort and say, but doesn't this? Uh, but it's a fallacy because you can't prove it. Because the trouble that people, and many of us do that, especially Christians, they have no problem reading here and there, if not all the time, the Old Testament as a parabolic story. But suddenly they get very itchy and antsy when they come to the New Testament. Suddenly they push to read at least some part of the Gospels as actualities. And that's the vicious circle, according to me, to go back and find a backing to your theory from the New Testament. You mentioned, John, where on the cross it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. It's very interesting that the Latin is added there. So it's a play on these three languages, the Hebrew of the Bible and the Greek, and here the New Testament is adding also the Latin because they were living in the Roman Empire, that the message of the cross already in Scripture, Paul refers to it in Deuteronomy, in his letter to the Galatians, is also addressed to the Greek, and also to the Romans. That's how I hear literature. So, Father Paul, it's once again a delight to hear you talk about languages and literature to challenge us and remind us to deal with the content of Scripture, even the languages of Scripture, as content in Scripture so that we submit to the words of Scripture and not to the idols that we abstract from its content and project somewhere else, whether it be a language, an event, or anything that's part of the content of the story. And I think what you're saying about Hebrew challenges us to take that seriously and push it to the furthest extent to submit to the anti-idolatry tradition of the Bible. Hebrew technically is precisely as Father Mark summed it up, the language of the biblical God. Just as a tale and Moses is presented as Hebrew, remember with the story when he went down to Egypt. But then he was speaking with his wife and his father-in-law who were Midianites. Which language was he speaking? The fact is that he was a shepherd and his father-in-law was a shepherd. This is what I'm inviting my hearers to make the effort to understand. 
it's in the story. They communicated with whatever common language. So I'm pushing the people to refer to the scriptural God, the scriptural language, the scriptural Moses, the scriptural Paul. We have to add it every time, not assume it. Because you know how uh, mainly the Orthodox, uh, oh yes, but the fathers spoke about the biblical God and the biblical Jesus. My question is, did they? <laughs> you see, you have to question that. Otherwise, scripture ceases to be a reference. And this is where most of my colleagues get frustrated. It's interesting, Father Paul. I will say this before we wrap up today. Richard has stressed a lot in his work on languages. Outside the field of biblical scholarship, he's stressed the influence of imperialism and how empires make out of their language a kind of idol that they impose in order to establish control. And I think this is secondary to your work on biblical Hebrew, the scriptural language. But I think your work enlightens Richard's work in this area, because once you extract a language from scripture as an idol, you can then use that language to impose tyranny in the same way the Romans used Latin or the Greeks, or Alexander used Greek, yeah. and God forbid we use Hebrew or biblical Hebrew or biblical Greek to impose tyranny. Yeah, especially as according to my thesis, it was conceived against this approach. I mean, imagine a literature so vast that is beyond the Iliad and the Odyssey that does not refer to itself in a specific name, Hebrew, except at the tail end, one has to ask the question. The authors could have done it otherwise. This is what stuns me with the way people approach it. No, it should have, it could have, it must have. No, why didn't they do so? Just put Abram, the Hebrew, spoke Hebrew, right? As an author, you have the control, but they did not. They are inviting us to conclude the same kind of conclusion you, Father Mark, conclude in this podcast. And that's, again, central for me. That's all I can say. Father Paul, thank you. I know both Richard and I look forward to these podcasts and we'll be living in anticipation of our discussion next week. I wish you all the best. Thank you very thank much, you. Father. Thank you very much. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.